0: Now, next, next um, Sunday with Truth and Light, there is a combined Sunday school, so we're not going to be uh, together here. We'll be together in the main ministry center part of the Truth and Light conference, so we're missing a week here. I really do like to get my um, stanzas for the Psalms. We, we reintroduced it last week, so I'm not going to reintroduce it now, but I, I do like to kind of keep them in blocks. But we're kind of overlapping now because there's material to cover and I didn't finish it last week, so I'm going to probably find myself again halfway through a stanza today. I'm going to try to see if that works out. Uh, great stanza today. Talked about the double minded man, what that looks like. But I want to finish what we were talking about last week. And last week, we were looking at the, the noon stanza, verses 105 through 112. So you're going to turn your Bibles. We'll go there now, uh, Psalms 119, verse 105, and take up from there. So we kind of gave ourselves a. This is where we left off last week. We covered this part here. Three aspects we're going to look at today and kind of finish up here. And then look at the last two points in the last two verses of this stanza, verses 111 and 112. His statement on contentment makes a beautiful statement here in light of, of their beliefs about uh, an eternal inheritance. And then talks about his firm commitment uh, go to the end. So he finishes with those two thoughts. And then we'll open up our our new stanza today as well. So, I'm not going to reread this, we're going to read the next one, so I'm just going to come back and, and the first, verse 105, Right, your word is a lamb to my feet and a light to my path. One thing we were looking about is we see his, his commitment in verse 106, his firm commitment, I, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rule. He makes a commitment, he makes an oath, I'm going to, be committed to your word. I'm going to be committed to following your word and I'm going to stay true to your word. What do we see after that? We see three three afflictions, three trials to this sworn <coughs> statement. Now, if you if you make a commitment, know this, if you're Older, you know this. If you're younger, you're learning it. But when you make a commitment to do things uh, and to follow a biblical guideline, you're going to have resistance. You're going to have pushback. You're going to have the flesh fighting against you. You're going to have the adversary fighting against you. You're going to have evil doers fighting against you. If you make a commitment to do the right thing and to abide by God's word, and say, well, i it could be a simple commitment as a family. You know, we're going to we're going to do this. We're going to be we're going to have daily de- we're going to have devotions as a family three times a week. What's going to happen the first time you try to have family devotions? You know who goes crazy on me during family devotion Our dog. Our dog. All of a sudden, the dog is over there, leaves us alone, family devotion time. She brings her toys in and starts barking at everybody to play with her. So really it's like devotion time, my dog is possessed. Now, I knew she was possessed anyway. <laughs> so that wasn't new to me. I knew she was possessed. We go she goes in demon mode is what we call it. But so you know, so all of a sudden, you know, what what happened to just get together, peaceful time together as a family? No, there's as soon as you make some kind of commitment, a biblical commitment, you're going to get resistance. So he makes a 106, verse 106, a sworn oath and confirmed it. I'm going to keep your righteous rules. And then we see three uh, responses to that, three, three uh, tests of this commitment. The first one is the severe affliction. And really that's probably the, the most beautiful part of this chapter is the response he gives to the severe affliction. We talked about affliction being a common theme. We talked about in Psalms how he, he – um, the, the emotional part grows. What he means by that he's, he, he is the intensity of thought grows in the Psalms. So he's been talking about affliction. Now he adds some intensity to that and talk about the severe affliction in response to a sworn oath to um, – to be true to God's word, and then look, his response to that is that, is, like I said last week, it's probably the most beautiful part of this chapter. His response to that is, "Lord, accept, <clears throat> accept my free will offerings or my voluntary offerings of praise." His response to the, to this severe affliction is to offer the Lord his free will, his voluntary offering of praise. I. I there, there are many times where I found people in in a situation of of great trial great difficulty and all there's left to do there's not Lord can I serve you can I can I be effective can I can I can I, can I am I wealthy enough to give goods am I uh, talented enough to give my gifts you're sitting there in bed you got nothing else to give and all you got left is the offer your voluntary offerings of praise and that's a beautiful thing in response to trials and affliction I'm flying over this because we looked at it last week so I'm just kind of bringing this back into where were then he talks about his Life is in the balance. He talks about the next verse. I hold my life in my hand continually. Now there's two aspects to this. One is the aspect of, of literally his life being in danger as we know it was, but also it's also indicative of one's willingness to give of give your life, give up your life, to, to um, die to self and let Christ reign in you. And he said, I do not forget your law. And then the last one we kind of Try to wrap it up last week on this one. Verse one ten. The third part is the wicked seek to make him fall. Uh, verse in verse one ten, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. What I find interesting, at least from this perspective here, <clears throat> is their desire to lay a snare. What's what's indicative? Now the snare, understandably so, it's a it's a trap. It's a usually the term is used in the Old Testament for a bird trap that's camouflaged and with a net to try to catch someone or catch obviously a prey. The danger that represents this snare is represented in his response. What's the danger of the snare? You see that in his in his response in verse in verse one ten. What's his response? He says what? I don't stray from your precepts. Now, the precepts is, remember, way back in the beginning, our chart on different words for, for the word, God's word, pre, or commandments. Precepts is the ways, walking in his ways. So his response is, first of all, he's saying the snares are, are tempting him to do what? His, the snares would tempt him to walk in a different way than the way of the word and being true to the word. So he says, the wicked lay snares for me, but I do not stray from your precepts and then the last two parts of this chapter here and i put the question how again we, we wrapped it up briefly last week how how does what are what do these snares look like in our life i mean if you were to if i were to ask you to just think through this what do do snares look like in your life snares are things that that are camouflaged by something else meaning that gives an appearance of something that is not and then at the same time it tries to draw you away from walking in his precepts, walking in his truth. What are snares, what are snares in your life that can that can draw you from walking in his ways? As you think through that, why I, I know that there are a number of of idols, you know, Old Testament speaks often of idol, a number of idols that become things that we we worship more than the Lord, or we love more than the Lord. That, that draw us away from His ways. Things that we love, things that we fear, uh, contentment, comfort, security, fear of man. I mean, so many things that ensnare us that um, will can pull us away from from His precepts. Verse 111 and 112. I love, I love 111 specifically. He talks about, so with this, starting out with the word as a lamp is to his feet, making an oath to be faithful to it. Then we see the three different afflictions that come through that. And then the, the contentment that he finds in verse 111. He says, Your testimonies are my heritage forever. And they are... The joy of my heart. So a final declaration of contentment in the face of these trials. He says, This is this is my portion, and I'm content and I'm satisfied with this portion. What I find beautiful about this passage is that the word um, heritage would normally be in in his context would be one of possession, property, of course, an inheritance. Uh, 224 times in the scripture we, we find the term inheritance and it's, re- it's referencing uh, in the Old Testament the, the Jewish heritage of the land, of a promised land. So the term usually carries some covenantal weight to it, right? It's the covenant that's been given to him, that's been promised to him. I say that, why? Because he takes that, but he says something a little bit different here. He says, your testimonies are what? Are my heritage forever. So He's not limiting a covenant agreement or an inheritance to the promised land, something that you promised here, peace on earth. He takes that to a much greater extent and looks at that inheritance in a spiritual. For us, it's easy because we're not looking to the promised land. You know, for us, it's easy because we're we're not looking at uh, God restoring America in a way that's going to make America the promised land that we're going to have fine milk and honey overflowing. No. Uh, but in his time, that's what Israel was, was uh, looking forward to. So when the psalmist says, My heritage forever, he is elevating the promise to extend beyond the land of promise to his timeless inheritance in the law. He goes beyond the land of promise to his timeless inheritance in the law. His contentment, in other words, is found... In the timeless promise that the law offers, not in the immediate rewards he might receive from it. Now, just ponder that for a minute. I know it's Sunday morning. If you've already been to the early service, you've already been thinking. So, your, your, your gears are working already, they're turning already. But for, for someone who, who, is, who is so attached to the covenantal agreement and promise that is made to him, he's sitting there saying, I've got an inheritance that is eternal. And I find that in the truth of God's word, and that's what he leans on. That's where he finds his promises. That's that's such a, a, a powerful statement that he makes. Not only is he satisfied that – verse 57, a little bit earlier in Psalm 119, he says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Now He goes to now God's word is his everlasting inheritance. And so I, I, I trust that we can, of course, make the same claim – but also lean on those same on those same promises. So, in addition to that, he says, verse one eleven. Now he's referencing the heritage forever. Then he goes. Second part of this verse is what they are the joy of my heart. Means he is enjoying. He enjoying rather his, this inheritance now. They are the joy of his heart. His everlasting inheritance always brought him present satisfaction. His everlasting inheritance brings him immediate joy and satisfaction. Listen, I, we we all look to to eternity to a certain extent, to where we look forward to God's return, God's establishing kingdom. We, how many of you have? How many of us haven't thought about what it looks like to have the the millennial reign on earth? You no know, Lord, what you know? What what, what responsibility do we have, and we contemplate that, and, and rightfully so. But in the midst of all of these afflictions and trials, he finds his contentment in not in what he's experiencing there, but what God has promised him there, and he finds joy in that now. So it's not about being sour and sad and oh, it's so sad, oh, it's so sad, it's so sad, and so discouraged. It's his expectation out there makes him brings joy to his heart, to his heart now. And then he ends verse twelve with. The final word of commitment. I incline my heart. Now he he takes that eternal forever heritage and he couples that with a commitment to also be faithful to the end. Verse 112. He says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Comes around full circle. uh, And he inclines his heart to perform your statutes There's a lot of debate around that one phrase simply because he's expressing his will and ability to be obedient to God's word. God, by his grace, has given us the ability to do as he did. And you look at different passages to, to incline our heart. The Lord was angry. We see this in scripture. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord in 1 Kings 11. The heart can be directed towards the Lord Joshua 24 says put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord the God of Israel. we're called to incline our heart to lean our heart to, to <clears throat> towards towards his statutes and towards his word. so he makes he makes his commitment and he he, he does so in light of what he's the, the affliction he's um, expressed here, but especially in light of this his commitment in verse 106 I've sworn an oath and then at the end, Uh, I incline my heart to perform the statutes forever to the the end. One thing that's been, I've been perhaps just encouraged by and thinking about faithfulness to the end and what that looks like. And uh, I've shared this with a few recently because it's just been on my heart. I guess you know how you start understanding things a little bit differently. I'm not so much concerned that I'm going to abandon the faith before I get my old age. Not getting there, but I'm getting there, Steve. My my knee's starting to hurt just talking about it. <laughs> but I was telling Holly this morning, this to to a preacher yesterday. So and he he said, I looked down at my hand, and go, Whoa, what's there's my father's hand. <laughs> it just all of a sudden just realized I'm I'm getting there as well. And honestly, I don't I don't sit back and think, well, I'm going to, Lord, you know, am I going to abandon the faith? Now, we're all capable of abandoning the faith. I mean, I could, I could face a tragedy that that somehow I don't find my anchor in the Word and I, by the grace of God that won't happen, but I, I understand that could happen. My greatest fear, though, is a commitment to the end like he's making here is not one where it's simply just believing in Christ, but it's being committed to... His word—it's been—it's—it's it's a passion for His word. It's faithfulness to to His word. It's not being—it's not just drifting across a finish line. It's walking in truth until the end. And so He makes that oath in the beginning that I hope I would—we would all want to make an oath to be true to His word, true to His precepts. And then, in the midst of all these afflictions and trials and and things that try to pull us away from His precepts, that would be true. In light of eternity, in light of eternal things, and then just make a commitment that I would incline my heart to the end that my heart would not get hardened it's easy in ministry to get hardened <coughs> just because you you see sin continually you see your own sin continually because every time you teach every time you teach you're measured against your you, you fall short of what you're teaching so every time you teach you fall short of what you're teaching so you feel already the weight of that and then you're, you're ministering to people who also are facing sin as well so you feel the, the weight of that so you, you feel that and yet in that Trusting the Lord and inclining my heart towards him, inclining my heart towards the word. And that's the commitment he, he makes here. So a beautiful, uh, a beautiful stanza. Let's look at our second stanza for today, verses 113 through one twenty. So I'm going to go ahead and read through this. <clears throat> We're obviously not going to get through it. We're going to introduce the, fir- the the thought that flows from this first verse. He gives a sharp contrast in the first verse. Let's go ahead and read it, verses 113 through one twenty. And then and walk through this because everything pours down, flows from this first verse. <clears throat> so this is our stanza of Samak. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. So, there's two things. One, I want to address the the, the first contrast here. Uh, Zemeck in his commentary says it's like a river that flows from this and you take two paths, the double-minded man and the single-minded man. So the first introduction we have in verse one is I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So everything else is really going to flow and pour pour from this. But I want to make one pause and make a a comment about what he says when he says I I hate the double-minded person. Now, First of all, what does it mean to be double minded? We're going to introduce that in just a moment, but maybe I need to couch that a little bit. When, I, when you hear him say, I hate the double minded person, what does it mean to be double minded? Hypocrite. When he says one thing he doesn't know. Okay, hypocrite. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Fred. I said that as soon as you walked in. <coughs> <right? laughs> I, know, I thought Mark was, and she texted me you were, so I came on anyway. <laughs> So a double minded person is a hypocrite, someone who says one thing does another. What else do you, do you think of, of when you hear of a double minded person? Easily swayed. Easily swayed. Infections and we'll see that good in James. Affections are divided. Affections are divided. Conniving. So he makes a very strong statement here, doesn't he? I mean isn't that one of the struggles of Christianity is seeing people that have divided affections? They're double-minded people. They're unstable. I mean, they don't, you know, they, they proclaim truth over here, but they're doing this over here. Or they say they love God, but they do this. Or they, they say they're attached to the word, they love the word, but then they do something that's solely contrary to the word, and they know it. I mean, not just out of ignorance, but just not, that's not for me, or... And you see, double-mindedness is probably a... a flail, what's the word flail in English? A, um, a plague... Of American Christianity, because we we have it, we, we're more bathed in Christianity, so it creates more this double mindedness. If you go if you go to a country where you're told, hey, you know, if you trust Christ, if you become a Christian, we're going to cut your head off. There's no double mindedness there. You know, you're not sitting there. I'm going to play the game. No, there's no game to play. You're either your life is is, is really on at stake here. American Christianity we, we can we can embrace it because either we're raised in it because there's a culturally accepted parameters for that so we can more easily feed into what would be double-mindedness but i want to i want to pause on the statement he makes here because the psalmist speaks very very strongly right he speaks very i'm even going to say a little bit harshly and i want to make this i want to i want to read one comment it's a long comment long quote from from c.s lewis on the idea of of hating a double-minded person so what does it mean to hate now I preached on Luke 14 recently and um, hating parents. We, we talked about the contrast there and the genre used in literature there. But I want to make one statement, and, and it's, it's convicting here. And again, I, how can you, the, the, the comment is, how can you hate the sin but love the sinner? Who, who has not heard that comment before? You know, hate the sin but love the sinner. How, how do you do that? How do, you, how do you not pour over to hating the sinner? How do those two things remain distinct? Because when he's speaking, I hate the double-minded man. It's like, okay, is he talking about I hate the sinner? He, he speaks very strongly about the person. And C.S. Lewis, and this is just part of his quote. This is the second half of his quote. And I'm going to read the first part and then pick up here as well. So um, indulge me for a minute here as I read his quote. Because he, he puts perspective on, on how we should approach someone who is evidently someone professing Christ but not living Christ. He's living a double-minded life. He says, I remember – I'm reading the first part of the quote. This is the second part here. He said, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago – and this is uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions but not hate the bad man or, as they would say, hate the sin but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There has never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. And just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. And consequently, and here's where I pick up, consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured. I, I thought it was helpful to put that parenthesis there because, one, as I was reading through some of the comments on this passage, someone jumped over and, and, and discussed C.S. Lewis on this topic. And simply, we should, we can certainly be very passionate about the word of God and we should be we should be passionate about truth we should be passionate about righteousness about purity about things that glorify the Lord we should have righteous indignation for things but I think it is it is a fine line between having this righteous indignation for things that we should be indignant about and holding up the truth of God's word and yet not allowing that to pour over into a hatred for the person and how what does that look like I guess C.S. Lewis just simply says, well, just think about how it applies to yourself. We don't hate ourselves for our sin. What we do is we, we hate the sin and we, we try to do better. We pray that God would help us fix it and, and correct it and cure it. And by God's grace, find repentance and, and uh, confess it. But we don't go about hating ourselves for it. But we, we do have a desire to have those things um, cured and confessed. And repented of, so in a small parenthesis there, just a, a thought to encourage us, as he's as as he's continually passionate about. Hey, you need to you need. I hate the double minded man. The more and more you're passionate about the Word of God, the more and more you're going to be contrasted. That, that strong contrast you have in this first verse. I hate the double minded man, but I love the law. That contrast is going to be more and more evident the more you love the law. The more you love God's word, the more you're you're going to find yourself in contrast with everything else that does not love the word. And at times, you're going to hear people say, "My daughter shared that with me yesterday. She had lunch with a with a friend and unbeliever from work, and she said something. Well, I, I like you because you accept me for who I am." My daughter says, "Okay, I'm doing something wrong here. <laughs> not quite, but..." You know, the the world says here's where it is. They, they want they want you to accept them the way they are and for us to be passionate, how can we be passionate about truth at the same time love people and those things both be communicated? Well one way you keep that in check is by knowing your own heart. And in all humility knowing your own frailty, your own weaknesses, and your own sinfulness. I don't walk in a situation with a judgmental spirit knowing that my heart is just as wicked in other ways, in different times, in different places. And I've got my 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 own sins to battle, but I don't go around hate myself for. It. I go around I go around uh, with a desire to to confess those and to make those things right. So, my prayer as we're as we're seeing people, and we we're going to have and we're facing people that are double-minded. Our prayer should be grief for them that they would do such things, and hoping that if in any way possible that somehow, sometimes, somewhere they can be cured of such. Of course, that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So. That's that's a an important context because he's going to start here with a strong statement about hating um, <clears throat> hating the double-minded and yet loving the law. So we we talked about a few definitions of what it means to be double-minded, to be half-hearted, to have shared uh, affections. It's a single usage word, which means it's it's only found in Psalm one nineteen and this one verse one thirteen. So. It's a word that is unique to this passage, so it doesn't give you the ability to compare it, but it does have, I think it's used as an adjective here, you do find it in a verb form later on in Scripture. So there are other places where we find the same word being used, and we find it used in First Kings 10. We're going to look at two passages. Next week we'll look at James 1. Today we'll only have time to look at First um, Kings 18. First Kings 18 is the... Other reference where the root word is used, and if you are familiar, you could turn there. I'm going to read verses 20 through 26 and we'll read a couple of verses here. It helps us understand what what does the Bible mean by a double-minded person and see a couple of illustrations of that. Next week in our well not next week, two weeks from now, we'll pick up with James chapter one. Where he gives a, you know talks about the double-minded man, but he uses a different word because we're in Greek now, obviously, but here we will find the same word. In First Kings, so what do we have in First Kings? We see the uh, Elijah, the prophet, confronts the prophets of Baal. He's going to challenge 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and uh, here's what he says in verse 20. And then from there, just just I want you to give me just three observations, if you have time for that, and then and go from there. He says, so verse 20, First Kings 18, verse 20. He says, Ahab sent all the people of Israel. And gather the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? The word two different opinions here is the same word used, same root word used for uh, double minded person. So, two different opinions. So, here's translated. You might have, it might have different translation than that, than two different opinions, or two different opinions. I don't know if you have something a little bit different than that. This is, this should be the ESV I copied off here. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So interesting already the, the, the context here, right? He's challenging these prophets. They're swaying the people. And he's telling them, hey, you know, how long are you, are you going to be limping between two different opinions? Double-mindedness here. If the Lord is God, follow him. Verse 26, a little bit further down. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. So briefly here, what kind of do we can we make about what the double-minded person looks like in this passage? What are the terms being used, and what does that make you think of? The first one is, is a figurative, figurative term, right? What, what observations can we make about the these double-minded or two different opinions? I'm being, I'm not that smart, guys. I'm just, I'm just, I just very basic what I see here. Yes, Julian. Maybe that they don't really stand firm for either opinion. They kind of limp and walk between two, kind of like the uh, the man and James that's you know, tossed and turned by every wave. So they don't stand firm on either one. I mean, you can't be you can't be firm here and firm there. So you have two different opinions. You can't stand firm and be and be in both ends. So a double-minded person is a person that's can't that's not standing firm. You can't be so you can't be a strong believer over here and be a double-minded person and also have affections and allegiance over here. You can't stand on both footings. Uh, the first picture I see here, the figure picture he has, is, is they're limping, right? They're limping around. I remember Pastor alia Sometimes I use that illustration that reminded me years ago. He says, you know, people that are involved in, in, in um, enslaved to sin, he goes, they don't lose their salvation, but it, it takes away their effectiveness as a believer. Meaning, it's not that you're not saved, but your ability to be effective as a, as a believer is is thwarted because you've got this. You're enslaved to the sin. And he goes and he, see, he use that term says you're limping along spiritually. Because I remember walking away from him saying that. I said well, I don't want to limp along spiritually. And he used an image a second time on the second part of this. Right. We talked about the the prophets. They limped around the altar that they had made. So one we see they limp. They're lame. Uh, figuratively, it means that. They, they're, they're not walking well, they're not sturdy in their walk, they're unstable in their walk, they have split allegiances, like uh, we're saying here, they have different opinions, but they don't stand strong on either one. And, I, and the, the last one here, I'd say this too, in the first verse that we read, <clears throat> verse 20, the people, it says what, well, the final part of that verse, it says what, well, and the people did not answer him a word. So he's challenging them you challenge a man of God, and say, "Hey, let's 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 carry a cross and do the right thing." And like the man of God's, like, "Yes, I'm there. I'm with you. I want to be that that man." They don't say a word. I mean, he's challenging their commitment. He's challenging their single mindedness to God. He's 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 challenging their love and commitment to the Lord. And they don't stand up. I mean, if you're a man of God, don't, if someone challenges, say, "Hey, you're you want to stand up?" and Say, "I want to be that man. I want to be. I want to be a Daniel. I want to be." I want they don't say a word. They're silent because their, their divided opinions, their double-mindedness, renders them silent for the gospel, renders them in, unable to stand for truth because they don't stand on either truth strong enough to take that kind of stand. So very, very a, a few indicators of what it means to have two different opinions, again, the word double-mindedness. So we're going to look next week. James 1, I don't have time now, and we'll pull some applications from that as well. And then we'll look at the two streams that flow from this verse. One stream that is one that takes you towards this, the single-minded man, and the other stream towards a double-minded man, and as you walk through that in, in the stanza. So thank you much for your time. I trust you have a, a wonderful and and blessed day. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that in your grace and mercy, that we would incline our hearts towards you, that we would be single-minded people, that we would incline our hearts to your word, Lord, and live your word in truth. Lord, I pray as we, as families, as, as fathers, as mothers, as, as parents, that we are, want to honor you in all these areas of our lives, that, Lord, we go and turn to you and turn to your word. I pray for these families, Lord. I I know they face the challenges of, of young children, lack of sleep, of grandchildren, and grieving over wayward children. There's all these weights that we carry, Lord, we put them at your feet, and we trust you for them, and we keep our eyes on our eternal heritage, Lord. I commit this to you. In your name we pray, amen.